0: This is Red Flag Radio. We're recording the show on Indigenous land land that was stolen, that was never ceded, that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. We're a revolutionary socialist podcast, in case you stumbled here by mistake and are wondering what's going on. Um, We talk about politics, we talk about history and theory and activism with people who are involved um, in many of the struggles that we discuss. And we like to try to put all of those things together in our discussions. So not separating out sort of politics and history and theory and activism, but um, drawing all of the strings of those elements of what it means to be a socialist together and I think the episode that we've got now um, is going to do that really effectively and it's about an event that happened um, in 2014 and I've got two guests on the show to discuss it, uh, Naomi Farmer and Diane Fields. Naomi is a long time socialist who grew up in the Latrobe Valley which is going to be important to this story and wrote an article for Red Flag of which this podcast is um, the, the sibling of the newspaper, um, that at the point she wrote the article was um, the most read in the history um, of Red Flag since it began. It actually crashed the website apparently according to the people who run the Red Flag website. It was called Disaster in the Valley and it was published on the 23rd of February 2014. Our other guest Diane Fields is a veteran socialist and we mean, we don't mean old, we mean very experienced, Um, and a writer who's just written a review for Red Flag of a book called Hazelwood, which has just been published um, by an author, Tom Doig, about, um, in part, the role that Naomi, in fact, and her family played in publicising the events in 2014. And Tom's book, I mean, it's an impressive work, I think, that brings together the story of what is one of the worst environmental and public health disasters in Australian history and a whole series of events that took place that were entirely preventable. And I wanted to just begin by reading a summary of his book so that people really can kind of get into what we're talking about. So he writes, early in the afternoon of 9th of February, 2014, during the worst drought and heatwave wave Southeastern Australia had experienced in over a century, two separate bushfires raged towards the massive Hazelwood open-pit brown coal mine near Morwell in the Latrobe Valley. The fires overwhelmed local firefighting efforts and sent a sky full of embers sailing onto millions of square metres of exposed, highly flammable brown coal. Twelve hours later, the mine was ablaze the Hazelwood mine fire burned out of control for 45 days. As the air filled with toxic smoke and ash, residents of the Latrobe Valley became ill, afraid, and angry. Up against an unresponsive corporation and an indifferent government, the community banded together, turning tragedy into a political fight. So, Naomi, you um, grew up in the Latrobe Valley. Can you... Just give us a bit of a background of your history and your associations with Hazelwood Mine.
1: Yeah, well, Hazelwood Mine is the place that my dad works or worked until it closed a couple of years ago. Um, he has worked there since I was little um, and he is one of several generations in my family who's worked um, in the Hazelwood Mine or my granddad worked in the Hazelwood Power Station.
0: Yep. And and do you remember... Um, kind of any of their stories of what working in the mine is like?
1: Um, I remember lots of their stories about working in the mine. is like working in the mine is a tough job. Um, when it's cold, it's freezing cold. When it's hot, it's very hot. Um, it is uh, dirty and long hours. People um, people work 12-hour shifts. Um, they work night shifts. It's a pretty bad job. Um, my opa worked in the... So my granddad worked in the Hazelwood Power Station um, for a couple of years after he migrated here to Australia Um, and in that time he worked with asbestos and he took that home um, to his family and it killed his son 30 years later. Mm.
0: So if we're thinking about Hazelwood in particular, um, so Hazelwood uh, in 2014 when we're um, looking at this, Fire and this disaster was owned by a private corporation, but previously it was owned, it was a, a publicly owned um, electricity producer. But actually, I think it's important to trace a little bit of that history, I guess. And Diane, whether you can kind of unpack some of that context and um, the place that energy, and particular coal fired power stations, play in Australia's history.
2: Yeah, well, I think Australia is probably one of the worst places in the world in terms of our rulers really loving fossil fuels. It's especially strong in Australian capitalism because Australia is, as people have variously called it, the Saudi Arabia of coal, and that's no joke. Um, and then the fact that the energy um, generation from that for those fossil fuels was then privatised in the 1990s was just part of making the whole thing worse. Um, I mean, the privatisation in the 90s was a way not just of making a present to the government's corporate mates, but it was also trying to undermine anything that might get in the way, any little fetters that there might be, a unions, workers' rights, those sort of things, environmental protection, anything that might get in the way um, of what they saw as the virtues of the free market. So the privatisation and the love of coal are sort of very much linked but I think there's a few things to say about, um, in Australia in particular, the importance of coal to the economy means that the coal industry has always had a very privileged place, even amongst other capitalists, um, and it's had this regardless of the party that's been in government. In fact, there's a, a lovely whole section in um, Tom Doig's new book that you were talking about, a section called First causes and it's wholly devoted just to the corporate history of Hazelwood and it's mind-blowing just by, but because of how they were so lucky what they got in terms of the, the, the government let them get away with murder quite literally um, but and it just how they did this at the expense of workers, not just their own workforce but also the working class community whose lives that the mine and the power station just blighted the whole time of their existence. Um, And, I mean, there's a whole history of, which I could go into, if you like, of the uh, La Tribe Valley more generally and the way in which they kind of developed the brown coal power stations there, Um, just in a way partly because they wanted to get away from reliance on the coal deposits of New South Wales, but also because they wanted to get away from the militancy of the coal miners of New South Wales. And so initially they start... Uh, mining black coal at Wontaggie to escape the radicalism of the coal miners in New South Wales and then discovered that the coal miners in Victoria are uh, just as radical as a massive strike successful in the mid-1930s. And so, in a way, moving to the brown coal deposits, even though they're much more polluting, and they knew this even then, is partly how can we escape the class struggle, how can we find, and they didn't find a compliant workforce in the Tri-Valley the tri- either but, It really gives you an idea about how energy supply, the fossil fuel industry and so on, is also very closely linked to um, the question of class rule in Australia. Mm. And the bosses want always their class to rule and they want to crush the other side in the class struggle. And then there's just the money. I mean, the big picture of Australian capitalism, I looked up some figures. The most recent ones I could find for coal exports from Australia were $67 billion worth in uh, twenty eighteen to nineteen. Mm. Um, and last year Australia overtook Qatar to become the world's largest exporter of natural gas as well. So yeah, what a winner on the fossil fuel stakes as the planets burning.
1: Yeah. Naomi? And I think the thing about attacking working class communities is really important in terms of privatization because if you look at the history of the workers in the power stations in the Trobe Valley, They had quite strong rank-and-file committees. They uh, were prepared to challenge both the bosses and the union officials. um, And they actually won quite a lot of stuff. For example, they won um, an extra week of holiday for the entire workforce of Victoria in the 60s. Like, this is important um, struggles, and they were important to the working class as a whole. And so part of privatisation is attacking those unions and is undermining those workers um, and their ability to organise. And it's worth saying as well, when the power stations were privatised in the Latrobe Valley, that wasn't the only thing that the Kennan government attacked. They also closed... Um, our hospitals, they closed schools. They really devastated the community um, in a much more general sense. And that's some of my first political memories. I was a kid. They closed the school, the high school I was about to go to. They closed the hospital I was born in. They really, really attacked the community as a whole. Mm, it's true.
0: Um, there's an excellent article in Red Flag by James plested on privatisation Um, that sort of runs through the whole history of the Kennett years and every single thing that they could sell, they sold. And that that history of class struggle in the mines and in Hazelwood pre-privatisation, I mean, the memory of all of that doesn't go away for the community around the mine. And, you know, the generations, like you said, in your family of people who had worked in the mine knew that um, every day is almost a fight, you know, for your conditions and for finishing on time and for your safety and all of those kind of things. So if we come to the actual fire itself um, and the day that it began, I mean, just, again, to put a bit of context for people, um, so Hazelwood Mine is less than half a kilometre from Morwell, which is home to 14,000 people. In fact, the particular side of Morwell that it's on, I think, is where there's, you know, a retirement um, community right, basically up against the edge of the mine, you know, there are childcare centres and primary schools and so on. There's 100,000 people living within 20 kilometres of the mine um, and this brown coal ash as the fire begins spreads um, as far as Melbourne actually um, and the smoke from the fire. So this fire starts and, Naomi, can you just tell us sort of when you first heard about um, the fact that the mine itself had caught fire?
1: Well, I didn't hear about it for a couple of days until after it had happened um, because there was no media reporting on it. There was no discussion of it. Um, I was at, in Melbourne at La Trobe Uni doing a socialist alternative store when my dad rang um, and I kind of asked him how he was doing and he got frustrated at me that I didn't know what was happening. Like He couldn't understand why I didn't know that this disaster had happened, um, which alerted me to the fact that it was going on and I um went back home to investigate it, see what was happening um and write it up for red flag because I knew that if no one did anything then the media would never pick it up.
0: Mm. And so when you got home and you spoke to your dad about what he was had been doing and because the mine is still operating at this point. Um because it's the, the mine, old Yeah.
1: The mine was operating the entire time the fire was burning.
0: Yeah so it's the old section of the mine that has caught fire that's basically been left uncovered and the the active section of the mine is in a different slightly different area but it's basically like on top of each other. So one of the things that happened with the people who were still working like your dad was immediate um, carbon monoxide poisoning. Um, Do you want to say something a bit about his experience with that? Well just
1: to say the size of the mine like it's A bit hard to get your head around it if you haven't seen it. The Hazelwood Mine is uh, deeper than the tallest buildings in Melbourne CBD. Um, It is wider than Melbourne CBD, Carlton and a couple of other suburbs combined. So it is a huge mine. Um, One of the real problems with fighting the fire um, the whole time was that the fire department, the CFA, was not prepared to risk mine assets. Um, there was a real focus on protecting the mine's continued operations um, even while the mine was uh, billowing uh, toxic smoke um, and so there the, a real danger was carbon monoxide um, poisoning um, because that level of uh, kind of black smoke where you can't even see in front of you it's so thick and um, nasty the the key protection that people normally have against that is um, carbon monoxide monitors, um, which are for individual use. You wear it yourself and then if the levels get too dangerous, it gives you an alert. Um, these were in dramatically short supply during the fire. Um, so teams of people had a carbon monoxide monitor instead of individuals. Um, so, for example, a firefighting team or a mining team, um, which meant that, like, that's that's not how you monitor it. That didn't, doesn't work properly. Um, and so there was uh, frequent uh, faintings, et cetera. So my dad um, was taken to hospital uh, twice. The third time he um, passed out at work, he refused to go to hospital um, because the hospital was just treating people in the waiting room and sending them away. Um, yeah, it was really, really dangerous. And, the yeah, it, it's something else to know that your um, loved one is going to work in Amongst that. Our across the world.
0: When I was sort of doing research for this episode and, and reading the accounts and um, the descriptions, and there's a bunch of audio and we might have some of it in the episode, is um, the sort of disbelief of people on their doorsteps watching this fire explode basically and I'm still having on ABC radio saying everything's fine nothing's happening they're calling in saying um, there's like a wall of fire and smoke right we we can see it from where we're standing Um, and it reminded me of watching the Chernobyl series that just came out um, the HBO pretty um, spectacular TV series and that same thing of people standing and watching Chernobyl explode and the officials saying don't worry stay where you are everything's going to be fine it's all under control which is basically what happened the same thing that happened in Morwell and in in the Latrobe Valley I mean it seems like a pretty obvious question but I think it's worth saying it Diane like covering up is always the first response why does this just happen
2: well I think the short answer is the love of fossil fuels that we talked about before that is Australian capitalism really needs this stuff. It's massively profitable. It's such a huge contributor to the boss's profits in Australia. That's really the reason. Um, but I think, you know, we can investigate it a bit more thoroughly. I mean, because I thought it brings to mind, I think, not just Chernobyl but something literally much closer to home, especially for me living in Sydney, which is the end of last year and early this year, the huge cloud of toxic smoke from the bushfires that was all over Sydney and in Canberra and Melbourne as well, but particularly in Sydney, really thick. You couldn't walk. I mean, I'm I'm not generally a person with lung problems, but I couldn't walk to the post office and back in those first few days without having to sit down because I couldn't breathe. Uh, and yet again the whole thing of this is really oh it's just it's just burning off, it's just bushfires, it's just normal, it's natural. Like that word natural I think should really be banned from any account of these kind of disasters because there's nothing natural about any of this. And so looking at when the when the Hazelwood, Hazelwood fire broke out, both the media and the government spokespeople just towed the corporate line. There was a, a thing in um, Tom Doig's book where he talks about the ABC radio. And who did they interview? Well, of course, a spokesperson for GDF Sewers, which was the name of the company that owned. Um, both at the mine and the power station at that stage. And guess what? The spokesperson says, oh, let's let's be reassured there's no cause for concern. And literally, there are locals watching the coal mine burning and exploding from their front doorsteps who are ringing up the station to contradict the, the official spokesperson. And so by the end of the day, the company just revises their line. So now they have this new line. We expect the fire to be out in two weeks' time again. Subtext, nothing to worry about, nothing to see here. And that convenient lie just kept the media placated for two weeks of there's no there's nothing to bother about and so on. And then the government officials were no better. You know, three days into the disaster, the chief medical officer Rosemary Lester, who I think probably really did lose her job out of all of this and did rightly so even if it took too long. Um, but she was alerted to the mounting dangers by the Fire Services Commissioner, and she said, as this is an occupational health and safety issue, it is the responsibility of the respective employers to ensure the workers' safety. So, sound of hands being washed and just brush it away and so on. And I think that, you know, the, I said before, the, 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 fuel, the fossil fuel industry and its importance to Australian capitalism is the real reason why they just cover up, but... If you ask the question in a different way, well, why not just be honest and confess? We cut costs at every corner, and that's why people have to die. Well, they were foreseeable, and this disaster was preventable. That's why they they always use the term that I really can't stand. I mean, I know you fall into using it in your industrial accidents, but the word accident should never be used in relation to anything like this. It's a dreadful term. This is the logical outcome of capitalist production. Profits rule. That's it. And so, and I mean, the coal industry in general, I mean, it's not just um, this particular, although this was a particularly horrendous case and the human consequence was so enormous, but in general, you think the history of the coal industry, they don't care at all about health and wellbeing. being of anyone who's impacted by the industry, think about you know the fact that we've got black lung back in the mining industry in Queensland today in the 21st century, or the fact that people in after the Hazelwood fire, all of the health consequences that people are still suffering, or the supposed cleanup. I mean, there there's a, another euphemism: the cleanup of fly ash when they decommissioned the Playford B and the Northern Power Stations in Port Augusta. The decommissioning left the whole town covered in toxic ash for weeks and weeks. So that's kind of the real concern. And that, I think, seeing what they actually do to people explains why a cover-up is so preferable than the truth.
0: Mm. And, yeah, I mean, the the role of the chief health officer now <laughs> is something very familiar to us because we see them every day on our TVs talking about... Um, the COVID-19 pandemic, but back then it was sort of a rare thing to have this chief health officer and people I think wanted to trust what she said at the time, which was, this is just going to be, you you know, there might be some temporary effects. If you just stay indoors and close your doors and windows, um, and people who have particularly bad health problems should maybe consider um, leaving the area, which people, to which people rightly said, well, where to and what with and how, um, with no support or anything. Um, When did you you think, Naomi, that um, people started to sort of realise that this was a lot more serious and that the messages they were getting from the government or the lack of communication, in fact, I think, um, was going to have to be addressed by, you know, the local people themselves?
1: Well, the key thing that happened was that I put out a red flag article Um, And the response to that was overwhelming, like that got so many views that our website couldn't cope, that uh, people started sending me uh, messages, um, like Googling my name and finding my Facebook and sending me Facebook messages to say, thank goodness, someone's finally saying something. Um, And people were sending me all sorts of horror stories, actually, like the, the chief health officer was saying, we don't know what's in the smoke and it's okay. it's not bad for you. Uh, Just stay inside and close your windows. And if your house is smoky inside, just open your windows. Um, Like just totally contradictory messages that were infuriating people. Um, And that the fact that they were saying that it's okay, it's not hurting you was such an obvious lie. Like the people, the things that people were sending me saying was happening was just overwhelming and horrific Um, So there's the obvious stuff about um, increasing asthma attacks and that kind of stuff, but then a whole range of new illnesses that you never would have expected. Um, So one of the things that quite a lot of people were reporting was a rash that had a really sharp sting behind it um, and that wouldn't be cured with um, any kind of cream. Um, People were noticing that particularly their pets and their small pets were getting really ill, um, and those were the first um, things that started to die in the Latrobe Valley. Small um, animals, um, and then the the key key time we knew that it was a real lie is that a couple of the community members put together. Um, they went to the local papers and they counted all of the death notices. And they compared that to previous months and previous years, and within that, it was obvious that people were dying. Um, so people's own experience was showing that what the um, officials were saying was just out and out lies. Um, and it actually came, was revealed later on, um, as part of our um, campaigning, we forced a inquiry into uh, the fire. Um, and then we forced a second inquiry into the fire because the first inquiry was a cover-up. In the second inquiry, it was revealed that Rosemary Lester, the Chief Health Officer, actually commissioned what she said was an independent study um, but then sent the author of that independent study's emails asking her to change her findings to make it sound like um, nothing was wrong, that we were making up the health impacts.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's staggering. I think because people, I mean, people want to trust the government and the authorities and everything, and and so the question becomes like, how much? How much do we want to say? You know, this is deliberate negligence. Because I think even using the word and um, disaster lets people off the hook a bit too. And um, is a disaster, but is it actually, in fact, a mass poisoning event? that people can be blamed for you know and whether we want to talk about it like that um and I now I- it
1: definitely deserves to be talked about like that like the thing that you have to mention is that the company that owns the mine didn't put in the proper safety um methods and maybe you couldn't have predicted that a bushfire would come to the mine but really you could have predicted a bushfire would come to the mine But the thing that makes it even more negligent and criminal is the fact that coal itself is self-combustible. So if it's hot enough, coal will light itself on fire. And what had happened um, in the decade or so in the lead up to this uh, fire is that the company that owns the mine had decided that it was more profitable for them to have frequent small fires that the workers who work there would put out than it was to constantly be dampening down the coal. Um, and as part of that, the sprinkler system in the part of the mine that burned had been removed. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the med- the it had been sold for scrap metal, is the rumour around here. Um, and that meant that the bushfire actually jumped over sections of the mine where the sprinklers were working, um, and it took hold in the places where the fire suppression uh, material had been um, gotten rid of. Um, it's also the case that the, back when this mine was constructed, um, one of, sorry, to say one of the things that made the fire worse was that it knocked out the electricity um, and the electricity powered some of the firefighting equipment that existed in the mine. This was exceptionally dangerous because it meant that the electricians had to go into the fire to try and reconnect some of the electricity uh, to get the fire suppression um, equipment working. So, people working with electricity whilst being hosed down in the middle of flames. Mm. But the people who built the mine actually considered the possibility that you would have an electricity outage and put in a fire fighting system that relied not on electricity but on gravity. What had happened though was that after privatisation so many of the firefighting crews and maintenance crews had lost their jobs that they actually lost knowledge of that firefighting system and so that firefighting system was never used while the mine was burning because no one who worked there remembered it still existed.
0: Yeah, I mean so it's staggering and it's staggering if, if you then add in the fact that this company that, owns, that owned Hazelwood GDF Suez at the time, um, was worth uh, 84 billion euros. Is the largest independent utility company in the world. That Actually, Hazelwood was a profitable um, plant at that point, was pro- providing millions of dollars worth of power a day. I mean, Diane, that's really the classic capitalism, profits come f- above everything else, right?
2: Yeah, well, it's always more profitable to leave people to die if you think that you can get away with it. And the mind will continue to operate. So, like, there's all those things that Naomi just went through. I mean, it's just—it's like if you if you wrote a kind of a crime thriller with this as this is what happened, people would probably find it a bit unbelievable that it, you know the whole thing about you, you have this gravity-fed uh, firefighting system that nobody any longer employed knows how it works. I mean, it just seems beyond belief. But I think really the whole question of negligence and blame and so on. Yes, this was not, well, it's not negligence because that sort of implies almost accidental. This mm-hmm. is really deliberate, you know, from the beginning. You know, all those things that Naomi said about the, the Chief Health Officer of Victoria, basically, instead of saying, this is really bloody dangerous and we have to do something to help people survive it, telling people a bunch of lies really about, well, Um, You know, you can temporarily relocate or open or close your windows depending on what our advice is today or whatever. And even the thing with the judicial inquiry, the things that are meant to be, you are taking this seriously, I think it's pretty clear that the first judicial inquiry, it's announced a month or so, about a month after the fire starts. And it's just another way of covering up. It's just another way of sort of putting aside the deliberate negligence of
1: the company. GDF Suez uh, sold the mine after the fire to um, Engie. Um, and the, before GDF Suez owned it, uh, a company called International Power owned it. But I think one of the things to understand is that the that is a way of uh, deflecting um, responsibility. The same individuals have owned the mine since it was privatized. The same small collection of extremely rich capitalists have. Owned that mine and power station since it was privatised. They've just shifted it from company to company as a way to avoid bad press and um, pretend that they were not um, so responsible for some of the actions that have taken. Um, so, throughout the decades, like the same individuals um, have made profits from that whilst uh, destroying the health, safety, etc. Mm.
0: And so, in response to all of this, I mean, you can imagine people suffering these horrific um, health consequences. I mean, not really knowing (laughs) what the long-term effects are going to be, but only sort of starting to imagine that there are going to be some, and not just long-term, but, yeah, immediately your dog has just died. Um, And then in the face of that, the government telling you all sorts of different lies, the health officer telling you all sorts of different lies, Um, you know, and and one thing in the um, audio from the time, Napthine, who's the Liberal Premier of Victoria, saying, "You know, actually, the blame here goes to the arsonist who lit the bushfire outside the mine. So that's the, you know, that's who you should be angry at if you're angry at with, with anyone. I mean, that used to be the case much more. Um, I think with the politics of bushfires, that you just they just can't get away with that bullshit anymore because people know that it's not really the problem. That actually, climate change, um, all of those kind of things have." cause these bushfires and a, having a massive open pit of, as you said, um self-combustible brown coal um is going to start a fire at some point or another that will have this effect. So in the face of all of that, um lies and denial and um, you could imagine a community that would just feel completely kind of despondent and, you know, um just devastated. But actually what happened with a whole bunch of people, including your mum, Naomi, was um, just starting to get organised. And I wondered if you could just say a bit about that because, you know, obviously you know know your mum very well. Uh, She wasn't exactly the kind of political organiser type um, before this event. Can you describe some of that transformation that happened and why she decided to get organised and what your role was in all of that?
1: Yeah, and to describe that, I can't go tell you the story of the protests as well Um, because the thing I said before about the Red Flag article and the messages that people were sending me, like it was obvious to me that people were annoyed, that there was some traction um, to raise a bit of a fight about this. Um, And so the first thing I did was call my mum and argue to her that we should call a protest. Um, And to give you the context of my mum, my mum has never been involved in Political activity. She was fairly. Maybe she watched the news, but not very. Was not political. Um, she was, yeah. There, I argued to her that we should call a protest, and she was a bit fed up with what was happening, um, and agreed. Um, and she is continuing to be a political activist um, years and years and years later, but. So the first the protest we called was I have been a socialist activist I think for about fifteen years before that point and and that event got thousands of people clicking they would attend within the first couple of minutes Um, it was something I had never seen before Um, it was dramatically popular Um, and then people started sending me messages asking can they help organize it can they put up posters like. Literally people sent me a message saying, is it okay if I print this leaflet and hand it out to my neighbours? Um, so that protest got an incredible amount of traction and it was after that protest uh, was put up that the media started paying attention to what was happening. Um, the, that was the first time it was reported in the mainstream media because we called a protest about it. Um, that protest was the following weekend and it was attended by a couple of thousand people Um, who met in a hall and listened to some speeches Um, at that meeting my mum said that she would not speak Um, she'd been asked if she would like to be on the stage and she said no she didn't want to be in that public role Um, but she had been doing research before that meeting on uh, uh, why and how you would declare an emergency Um, and she got such a head of steam at that meeting. She was so annoyed that the chief health um, officer was refusing to declare an emergency in La Trobe Valley um, that she stormed the stage and took the microphone um, and uh, made a uh, speech denouncing the chief health officer. Um, and the crowd booed and cheered along with her and she has never looked back. Um, after that meeting, we marched um, down the streets um, of what we took the highway actually, marched down the highway of Moore, Um and it was something I'd never seen before, like just this kind of spontaneous outrage, like there was whole families there. There was one amazing young group of teenagers who grabbed the microphone and started um, chanting about Tony Abbott um, just because they hated him and they <laughs> had, a, had a megaphone to shout about it. Um, cool. Yeah, it was totally appropriate. Um, I won't repeat the words that they said, but they were totally appropriate. <laughs> um, I think I've got that so, on a
0: t-shirt. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, that t-shirt. Um, that was a the first of our protest we then had at the front of GDF Suez in Melbourne. Um, so we had a bit of a campaign to uh, get attention um, and make a fuss about it. Um, because all of that thing about covering up, about ignoring the needs of the community, like we needed healthcare. We needed a bunch of stuff that the government weren't offering um, and the only way we were going to get it was protesting. And we managed to throughout that win actually a whole range of things, like we forced them to provide um, emergency uh, payments so that people who were struggling with bills could afford to leave. Um, more will we forced them to provide um a whole range of things and we forced them into an inquiry that revealed um, the truth of it. We forced a um, health study um, that is still reporting on the long-term health effects um, that is still affecting people here. Um, And so I think a combination of just the utter outrage of the situation but also the fact that there was someone there to say what should be done, how it should be done, why it should be done. And then the sense of achievement of actually being able to stand up for yourself, like, meant that not only my mum but there's a handful of people here now who are uh, part of Voices of the Valley, which is the community group that was formed out of it um, and are still active in fighting for the community. Yeah,
0: and it's incredible. And, Diane, you write about this in your review of the book because the book talks about the role of Naomi's mum, Wendy, and other activists and Naomi. and this, this idea that we talk about um, as revolutionary socialists that this kind of um, crisis can force people into activism but also sort of changes something about who they are essentially. Do you want to say something about some of that, those kind of lessons from this?
2: Yeah, well, it's such, a, it's such a concrete kind of example of something that, I mean, socialists, we're very fond of saying ideas change in struggle And that can seem like a truism, but it's also just bloody true. Uh, And these examples, like I became a big fan of um, Wendy Farmer out of reading that book, I have to say. I already knew that, you know, Naomi's role and so on, I was already a fan of hers. But actually her mum's, the transformation, the way that happened, it's so well described in the book. And it's just so, the, the fact that, you know, people can be fed up, but the fact that people are fed up collectively that they can reinforce each other, that that whole kind of, in a way, the idea that the personal is political. Well, you'd be hard-pressed to think it's just happening to you personally when the whole of the valley is pretty much on fire and covered in smoke and so on, but but that people see we can do something about this together that we can't do individually Um, so that people could see what was wrong with the situation, but also that feeling of we can do something about this. I think, you know, that's a that it's obviously it can be strongest when we do this as workers in the workplace because we can sort of exercise our power. It's sort of obvious you go on strike, they can't do anything. But I think mass political struggles, which this was, have that effect in in a way as well. And so, you know, like I thought it was really maybe because I've heard this phrase so much during the pandemic, this whole we're all in this together, which I just loathe coming out of the mouth of Scott Morrison or somebody, as if we're in the same situation as those ruling class shitheads are. But I think the, at, at a at a kind of community level, for these people who lived in the valley, ordinary working class people, yeah, they saw that they were all in this together. And as we said so often in the demonstrations around the bushfire smoke in Sydney, no one is coming to save us but us, that, actually that can be a powerful motivator of having to do something. And then you see that you can get somewhere. And so the things, as as Naomi said, it sort of reinforces itself. But I think there's another thing as well that came out of this um, is that it reinforces how much more logical it would be if working-class people just ran the world. Like all those examples that Naomi gave before about that the mine workers had already told the mine management, that it was a mistake to pull out those suppression sprinklers, um, that they could see what was going to happen and they, partly because they worked in it, they were pretty keen for it not to happen. Um, the, the clearing about the fire breaks, that the company had promised that they were going to put clay all over the exposed flammable coal and never did it because probably by that stage they were already planning to get out of the mine, and close it down or whatever Therefore, this will be just money down the drain. The fact that the whole of the workplace was unsafe, the workers constantly pointed out it was unsafe. WorkSafe actually turned up and um, there were stickers on all kinds of things saying this is unsafe and must be rectified. So the working-class people had an idea, both because they were on the suffering end of it, but because they'd worked there, that the world could be very different uh, it's just that the world that we live in doesn't kind of, you know, allow for even the prospect of this. But I think it does raise all those really important questions.
0: Mm. And and so then 45 days later, after they said it was going to be 14 days, they would have the fire out. Eventually the fire is put out. What happens after that, Naomi? I mean, that's sort of a big question. But what have been some of the things that have happened since then? You mentioned the two inquiries um, that took place, but... What has life in the valley been like um, since the fire was put out and those long-term health effects and everything that are still being felt?
1: Well, there's, so the health inquiry is still reporting on things. Their most recent report um, was that they found that a bunch of young children um, who were in utero during the fire um, mm. have been more susceptible to lung infections and asthma than anyone else Um, and their control group was other young children in the valley who are more susceptible to asthma Um, anyway. um, So there's still that battle I think for um, the health impacts to be both recognised um, and the health inquiry is one of the things um, that is being used by a whole bunch of people around the world to look at the um, impact of fires on human health because this actually hasn't been studied very much Um, in our world Um, but of course there's still a need for actually health services um, and such in the valley the voices of the valley continues to exist as a campaign group um, and they uh, they do a range of things including um, campaigning against uh, polluting industries coming to the latrobe valley we've got enough of them thank you Um, they support um, other groups who are campaigning against polluting industries so Um, the Hume uh, uh, um, anti-toxic incinerator group had a win recently uh, um, and that was in part support from here um, letting people know about actually how they can challenge um, corporations that um, as well the the case there was a uh, what is quite a groundbreaking case against the owners of the mine. Um, they, they were found guilty in the Supreme Court on a variety of charges um, relating to the mine fire, um, including charges around polluting the local community. Um, and so that itself is quite significant because that is um, something that doesn't normally happen. Um, it's worth saying, though, they're fine collectively. They're... Um, companies that own uh the mine were fined almost two million dollars um almost two million dollars so 1.7 million dollars is nothing that Mm. is like change um and one of the reasons well there's many reasons that the judge decided not to find them very much but one of the reasons was that the judge determined that um the mine owners had been good corporate citizens Um, so for a example they give money to charities in the latrobe valley so they shouldn't pay a fine an excessive fine um, which i think is just horrific um because yeah um yeah there's all sorts of things that are wrong with that um but um it's also worth saying that hazelwood power station and mine have now closed um the mine and power station were actually never meant to be operated This long, um, when they were built, they were built to run until 2010.
0: Mm. Yeah, I mean that the scale of those fines makes you think. Well, a corporate calculation on this whole situation would be: well, we know a fire is going to happen, probably almost inevitably will. It's going to cause all of this damage to people's health, but whatever. We can keep the profits turning and we'll probably, the worst thing that can happen is that we'll have to pay a small fine. It's like really an investment for the company to leave people to suffer. And like you said, all of the kind of bullshit, fucking sponsor a local football team or whatever they try to do to make themselves look good. It's like compared to the exploitation of every single worker who's worked in that mine and every single member of their family who has to and be part of that too. It's just yeah, it's just absolutely um laughable. Our the world. So if we were to think, Diane, about, you know, okay, they've been found guilty of breaching the Environmental Protection Act, you know, work safe and all of these kind of things, people say, Well, you know, there you go, the system is kind of churned out its justice. Obviously, it's not real justice. What kind of things would real justice look like in this case, do you think?
2: I'm tempted to just cut to the chase and say an end to the profit-driven system of capitalism because the whole, the whole logic of this case is not unique. It's uniquely horrible in lots of ways, but it's not unique that this kind of cost-cutting, think about you know, every workplace where somebody is killed on the job is an example of exactly this same thing in miniature, that there's a logic here that if you're going to have profits, then human health, human lives, quality of life, let alone the ability to be alive at all, that's all got to go by the wayside. And then seeing the kind of, yeah, this, this less than $2 million as a line. Then I mean, what a bloody joke. This is the, this is the biggest energy company in the world. Um, and yet, you know, $2 million is all they get. So yeah, I think it, the, it's, not too much of a stretch, really, to say, well, to really get justice, you have to get rid of the Brisbane system of capitalism. That's it. Obviously, short of that, because we don't just wait around twiddling our thumbs for capitalism to end, it's not going to end that way, is the kind of campaigning that people in the Valley engaged in, the, the kind of demand that you have to make the rich pay, that we have to close down their destructive industries. If their industries are going to kill us, then those industries have to close down. So the whole, but they have to close down at the expense of bosses, like, you know, as you can imagine, anything to do with the fossil fuel industry. They're always, and I imagine the toxic waste dump people had the same argument you're lucky that we're coming to your community and going to give you jobs. And the fact that jobs will probably kill you, well, that's kind of beside the, you know, by the by. So I think, you know, short of ending capitalism, uh, campaigning to make the rich pay to close down the destructive industries, to create enough of a political crisis, as was done with the Hazelwood fire, that it couldn't be ignored and they so much wanted it just to be ignored. Um, And I think without that kind of pressure, like, yeah, nothing happened about this except what was done by that kind of rank and file organising and activism of ordinary people, most of whom had not seen themselves as activists before it began. And so the fact that angry people were persistent, that they weren't prepared to put up with the consequences of all the cost-cutting or the indifference of the media or the who cares of the chief health officer or whoever, the fact that people wouldn't put up with that is so important in terms of how you get any justice at all. Um, Because without that pressure, in fact, without much more of that kind of pressure, they will literally get away with murder. And as soon as I can... They'll try it on again. And there was one thing um, about how the company responded that really, I thought, drew a real picture of without the constant pressure and without if their system is allowed to continue, yeah, they might have to put up with our opposition for a bit, but then they'll go back to their old ways. And this is something that happened in July 2015 that the owners, GDF Sewers, announced that the company was going to refuse to pay the $18 million bill that they've been given for fighting the fire. That is, the Country Fire Authority had said, well, you know, we had to put these massive resources into, you know, cleaning up your mess, basically, Um, and your part of the bill is $18 million. Again, nothing for a company of this kind. Um, But according to the company's statement, they weren't going to pay it. The firefighting effort should be provided to it at no further charge, as it had already paid the routine taxes and levies uh, of just you know corporate tax and so on in previous years, and I think that really sort of sums up. As soon as they think they can get away with it, they're back to the old thing, the old kind of yeah. We really we rule. We deserve to rule. We can do this. Your lives don't really matter and so on. And so, I think to end on a more positive note, I think it's also why we have to celebrate the kind of activism that Naomi and her family and all these other people in the valley engaged in. Um, We've got to agitate for more of that Um, and we see glimpses of what's possible, but I think we need to harness two additional factors. One is the, which, you know, not always immediately possible, but I think part of the bigger picture has to be um, the involvement of workers as a class exercising their power as those who make all of production happen. And the second is revolutionary politics. If you ever wanted an example of the, our argument that capitalism cannot be reformed and has to be destroyed, I reckon this case in itself really does illustrate that so strongly. And just that they'll be back to their own tricks as soon as the pressure eases. It's like that, what's that That Greek myth, the labour of Sisyphus? You know, Sisyphus pushes a boulder up to the top of the hill every day and every night the boulder rolls down to the bottom of the hill well, that's how capitalism would like to see our struggles, and I think you know the kind of struggles that um, the people of the Le tribe valley have engaged in over many decades. Really, not just in relation to fire, it's just an inspiration to well, why we have to keep fighting to get rid of the whole rotten system.
0: Agree, um, Naomi. I mean, in terms of the history of red flag and um, our intervention in politics through the newspaper and in other ways i mean this that article that you wrote has to be one of the most important interventions that has happened um around our politics and i mean you couldn't have expected that at the time um i mean there's a, been a lot of things happening politically and personally and so on but in terms of the the lessons that you took from this whole experience what do you think what would you say to our listeners are some of the most important things that you learned from from this Whole period
1: well i think the first one is the how very little they care about us like you look at the the living amongst such toxic black smoke like the they did so little to prevent it happening they didn't even want to rush to put it out like they were more worried about preserving their mine's operations than putting out the fire um they don't care about us our lives are like little ants to uh, the rich that own this um, this mine, um, who are responsible for it. I think the second thing is, I think, the most important thing. Like, actually, when something terrible happens, like taking a stand, the fact that I was able to organise a protest, which was going out on a limb, but that galvanised people behind me. That, like, changed people's lives, actually. Like, people have said, that changed my life, um, It meant that people would stand up for themselves. They could get a sense of their collective power and it actually forced a whole range of things to happen that wouldn't have happened otherwise. And related to that one, I think, is having politics. Like Diane just talked about the importance of revolutionary politics and that was important. Like the fact that I'd been a revolutionary socialist for a long time, it meant I had an understanding of how the world worked. It meant when... The politicians tried to tell us that nothing. I had an understanding of what politicians do. I had an understanding of how corporations act. I had an understanding of the forces in the world, um, not only to navigate the difficulties of that situation and the lies that were being told, but also in terms of who to look for to as allies and how to start mobilising people. Um, and then the final thing I think is like. Gives you a sense of the potential in the world. Like within that campaign, ordinary people became something more than they had ever been before. Like, and I haven't even told you a bunch of the stuff that people did. People were able to become like scientists. Like people studied airflow patterns and studied a whole bunch of stuff that allowed them to understand what was going on in the world and allowed them to make an impact on it. Um, People organise themselves and other people in ways that they had never done before. As by standing up for themselves, they become something more than they had ever been, um, and they continue to be that more today. Like actually, it changed it. it changed them, um, and it gives you a sense of how actually, if ordinary people run the world. Like they would. They are firstly so capable, um, and secondly, could do it so much better um, than the way it is now.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's really nothing ordinary about ordinary people. And this story is another illustration of that. Um, Diane and Naomi particularly, thank you so much for coming and talking about this. I know that it's not the easiest thing to talk about. and It has obviously been something very personal for you and the whole experience of it just unimaginably horrific. And so we appreciate you um, sharing your stories and talking about the politics of it and um, with us on the podcast so thank you both you're listening to red flag radio we have a world to win